Lord, be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to be closing out Matthew chapter 7. Um, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, and and while, while you're doing that, it's, mo the songs we sang were from the early 2000s predominantly, uh, but one of, the th one of the blessings and curses of the early 2000s was not just the, the type of music that, that came, well, that would have been a blessing, but um, there, were, there was something that became known as the emergent or emerging church. Uh, it, was, it was actually both a blessing and a curse, although... Uh, probably more a curse than a blessing. But it was a curse because as a movement, it refused to acknowledge the brute, clear facts of Scripture. A brute fact is just something that is. It's, it's there, it's strong, it stands on its own. Um, and and the, the emergent church did not read Scripture as Scripture, so that was a major curse. Um, it, it did not acknowledge that what God said of himself was actually true. The, in fact, the question, so what does that mean to you? Have you guys heard that in a Bible study when somebody says, what does that mean to you? What does that verse mean to you? What does this verse mean to you? That actually was from the emergent church. And it became a, a real curse in Bible studies specifically because the question was actually formed and used to undermine the authority and inerrancy of the scripture. It, it, it came into a lot of written Bible studies. Let's talk about what these verses mean to you. And most of the time it came from people that just didn't realize the source. So the emergent church was a curse, but it was a blessing. In a really roundabout way, the emergent church, which was built predominantly on, on white, uh, younger, hipper folk, who had questions about the Bible, and they would go to an emergent church, which was usually just in a coffee shop or, uh, or, or in like a grand open space. What it, what it did do that was a blessing is it reclaimed a sense of conversation. It reclaimed a sense of talking about uh, God. And while it eschewed doctrine and, and any theologians that honestly were over 50, with the exception of N.T. Wright, uh, who wrote into the emergent church uh, pretty, pretty heavily until he was essentially kicked out for being too orthodox. Um, but, but the emergent church did not listen to any, any theologians that were really over 50, and they ignored theologians that were dead because they're not living, they can't write anything new, so they don't understand our modern mindset, the emergent church really was a phenomena where people would gather, they would have these conversations just back and forth, and, uh, and it, it tried, again in a roundabout way, to create wonder and awe about God. Now mind you, I'm not endorsing the emergent church. Actually, I, I, I have a deep despising of the emergent church. Um, I would consider it a plague specifically on white evangelicalism because it did not go into the Hispanic community. It did not go into the black community. It stayed in, in white Christianity, uh, specifically American in the United Kingdom, Canada as well, but not as much. Um, 
So it, it, it was a plague, and it really it was a tool of the devil to suck the youth out of churches, uh, to, to move them away from biblical truth and put them in these communities where, where uh, honestly, every idea had the same level of merit. So it was, a, it, it was not good. But what it did is it, it, it actually revived a desire in evangelicalism, proper orthodox Christianity, to have small groups, to have home groups, to have community groups, whatever we call them. It, it revived this desire to have the people of God gather on a day other than Sunday in a place other than a church building and enjoy fellowship. But it had two central things, and these are two things I, I, I think are good. It had conversation about God and amazement of God. Those were two central themes that any emergent church uh, person would try and tell you is what they're about. So I could spend the next several hours, honestly, unpacking the theology of the emergent church because nothing was settled. Everybody disagreed and everybody was on these all different levels. Um, but, but really, honestly, I don't care. That's a lecture for another time. The emergent church is only alive and well in Portland, Oregon. Everywhere else, it's dead. So uh, I don't really care. But what I want us to remember is conversation about God and amazement of God. Um, those two things are good, and they're actually in our text today. Uh, to, our, our text today contains those two principles, but in a way that doesn't need to be redeemed, like, for instance, getting a small group centered around God's word. But our text today is going to confront us about how we converse about God's word, and also, honestly, it's going to confront us about our amazement for God forcing us to consider maybe some possible sinful habits you and I have both developed. And I hope, by God's grace, that our text is going to lead us to some repentance. So let's read our section. So it's Matthew 7, verses 24 to the end of the chapter, verse 29. Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It's the word of the Lord. What we have in verses 24 to 27 is a parable, obviously. It's a story, right? It's a, it, 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 it doesn't have names. It's just, it's just a story. But it's, it's actually there to illustrate the topics that Jesus has been talking about and we've been talking about the last several weeks. To summarize those topics, topic number one, which would be, uh, which would be as I'm on the wrong page of my Bible, uh, verses 12 through 14 enter by the narrow gate, that is Jesus and his ways, into eternal life, while avoiding the wide gate leading to destruction. And then number two, which would be verses 15 through 20, 
Look out for false prophets who lead people to destruction. And then number three, which would be verses 21 till 23. Some of those who have been led to destruction will try and convince God that they are good enough and did amazing things so God should let them into heaven. So there's a theme going on, and it's destruction. Destruction versus salvation. Destruction versus life. And the illustration that we read about the two homes is just that. It's an illustration showing the, the judgment of God. The flood image that Jesus is depicting is one that's wiping out these two homes. One has its foundation on sand. One has its foundation on rock. Uh, this... This could be thought of maybe as like a local flood. Like maybe here, if we, had, if we had a flood, and let's say one home washed down river, the other one uh, managed to stay, stay where it was. Maybe the one that was in, was where it was, was anchored into the ground, while the other one just had like a basic wood frame foundation, and it floated like a boat uh, down into the swamp. So some form of local flood has come and one house got destroyed, one house got saved. And this image, honestly, of a flood causing destruction to Jesus' hearers probably would have brought them back to Genesis 6 through 8, which would have been Noah and the flood, which wiped out all of mankind and God only saved a single family. So the thought of the, of a flood as God's judgment would not have been foreign to these folks. When they, when they read this, they, they, they're thinking, well, at least, one, at least one house survived. So Jesus is trying, trying to create this illustration that evokes an image in his, in his hearer's mind. But what is he illustrating? Now, sometimes when you read these verses, you hear maybe a metaphorical understanding of, oh, the storms of life. Right? The problems in life come and they wage against this house, but the one that's founded upon the rock, it's, uh, it's not going to go anywhere. And maybe you grew up in Sunday school where you sang the song. You guys know the song? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, I looked it up this morning. I'm not going to sing the whole thing. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Uh, <laughs> but, but what Jesus is pointing out here is not, not actually the storms of life. What he's presenting is not rains constantly beating down and maybe the house starts to mold and then it falls apart and it crumbles. He's saying this is a flash flood, bam, house is gone, house stays, and it's because of what it was attached to, what the home was attached to. So Jesus is, is trying to solidify, again, his previous three points of the, 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 the way of destruction and the way of life. One gets to have its foundation on the rock. The other has its foundation on sand, which shifts. And it, it goes away. As soon as something, as soon as something that's, that's going to move, the sand comes, the sand moves, and this house gets destroyed. He's depicting judgment. He's depicting, honestly, eternal destruction and eternal life. And how is he doing that? How does one build their house upon the rock? Well, Jesus says it. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice that requirement. You hear and you do. 
It's not enough to listen to Jesus and remember what he said. It's not enough to listen to Jesus and repeat what he said, to listen and even understand what he said, to listen and talk about it, or even dispute for it and defend it. That's not enough. We are called to listen and do. And that's, that, that, that's one of the areas where the emergent church fell short, for instance, because they, while it cultivated this, this culture of conversation, it wasn't able to do. It was able to explain all these varying degrees of understanding, but it never did. Why? Because it didn't agree on who Jesus was or, 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 or how we are to read the Bible or even what, what the nature of something like this would be. Oh, it's an image. Maybe it's, maybe it's just some great Taoist phrase. The emergent church was funky, man. But, but we are called as Christians to listen and do. If we want to have our house founded on the rock, we are to listen to Jesus' words. We are to listen to what God has said and do what? We do what he said. We're not called to simply grow in our learning or flaunt some pedigree of being able to quote the whole book of Ephesians, uh, which I did know a guy that could do that. It was actually really impressive, but, but it didn't mean that that was like the hallmark of his spiritual life. If you knew him, actually, it would be really funny. Uh, he, he uh, anyway. But, but it, we're not supposed to show our pedigree of knowledge. We're not supposed to show um, maybe, maybe our ability to, uh, to explain things. We don't flaunt things in the Christian life. We listen to what God has said and we do it. Simply, simple as that. We're, we're supposed to ensure that we're doing. If we want our house built on the rock then we, we need to do what he said. And really what Jesus is presenting here is, is not just a rocky outcrop. Uh, there's an image supporting this where there's like a giant boulder in the middle of, the, of a desert and there's a little house on it. It says the wise man built his house upon the rock. Um, it was, when I Googled it, it was like thing number two. But, uh, but, or image number two. But, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not a boulder in the middle of the desert. It's actually bedrock something firm and stable, attached to the earth, not just sitting on top of it. So if we want to be like the wise man, builds his house on the rock, we listen to what God has said and we do it. That's the point of this image. Now, of course, this command is going to sound different if we're reading something like Leviticus. You and I are not supposed to read Leviticus and, oh, okay, all right, I got to do all these feasts and I have to go into the tabernacle. What tabernacle? Uh... <laughs> that's that's different but but when we read like the legal requirements of of the israelites most often we can understand the principle and and apply the principle as opposed to applying it directly we're still listening to god for instance have you guys ever known that you're not supposed to wear mixed clothing i guarantee you are all wearing polyester cotton blends <laughs> That's what our culture does. And you are commanded by God to never mix clothing. You are sinning, you sinners. Actually, the rationale behind that was that you weren't supposed to do things that, that, that honored Baal. And Baal liked it when you, were, when you wore mixed clothing, when you took a deer hide and you took a cow hide and you mixed them together. And it was supposed to be, well, it was, 
it was kind of a, a bad image, but, but it, it was all about the mixture, the, the combination, and the more combinations you could have. That was, that was honoring to Baal, and it was supposed to increase your, your fertility, both in crop and in children. So when the Israelites are told, don't wear mixed clothing, it's not because God's like, yeah, you know, that's weird, guys. Don't mix polyester and cotton. He's trying to tell people, don't honor Baal, honor me. So most of the principles of, say, Leviticus could be summarized in Leviticus 11.44. Be holy, for I am holy. That's how we listen to God in a book like Leviticus and do what he has said. And there's so much in Scripture that we're commanded to do if we think about it in that, in that frame uh, through historical books. We're commanded time and time again to repent of our own evils and to remember that the sins of our leaders will lead to trouble with God's judgment. Through poetic books, we're called to drink deep and meditate on God and his ways, ensuring that we have a God-focused life. Through the prophets, we're warned of the, the, uh, warned of the sins of nations, or that the sins of nations are going to lead to that nation's destruction. But also we're reminded of the perseverance of God's people. So throughout the whole Bible, we're, we're told, we're, God tells us what to do, and therefore we do it. It's not necessarily specific. We have to we have to think about it in terms of chronology. For instance, uh, guys, when you make dinner, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That is sin. <laughs> no, how are you going to practice that? Well, that's why you got to think and you got to pray and you got to meditate. And in the New Testament, we graciously have a lot of those Old Testament truths, the harder ones, not the goat and its mother's milk, unfortunately, but specifically applied to the believer's life. We are told to hear what God has said and do them. Point number one, if you're filling in the bulletin, is doing what Jesus commands saves us from the judgment of God. If you read this section, 24 to 27, building your house on a rock, that's the point. The point is that you're supposed to do what Jesus has said, and it saves you from his judgment. Therefore, when you hear what God has said and do not do what he tells you to do, you're building the foundation of your soul on sand. You will be led to ruin when God's judgment comes. You'll meet destruction. In fact, listening to God's word and failing to do what he calls you to do will heap up significant judgment on you. As will running away, by the way. Running away so you don't have to hear it. Shutting up your ears, pulling a Pharisee. That also heaps up judgment. We deserve a lot of judgment. But if you hear God's commands and do them, even in your own feeble attempts, relying on God's grace through prayer and reflection of your own heart and soul through God's word, your soul will stand not because of how well you've built the house, which I think is interesting. Jesus doesn't include that in here. He doesn't include how well the house is built. All he cares about in this image, in this illustration, is what it sits on. So however well you build your house, it doesn't matter. It's about what you're anchored to. What are you anchored to? 
Rest your soul on the solid bedrock of Jesus Christ. Do what he says. And you'll find that when the waters and waves beat against your soul, even the trials of life, but especially God's own judgment, you'll be immovable. Why? Because you're anchored to the bedrock. Doing what Jesus commands saves us from the judgment of God. So that, that particular section, I mean, I've heard that in every Sunday school class constantly. But what I'm really excited to talk about is not those verses, even though they're important and they, they, are, they, they are true. We need to converse, like when we do Bible study, we need to talk about God's word, but we also need to apply God's word and make sure we're doing what God has said. We need to help each other in that. We need that section of, of, of the emergent church mission that we apply God's word together. When we're in Bible study, if we're not applying what we're reading, then we're not doing it right. We, we need to make sure that we're doing what God says we ought to do. But what I'm excited about is the conclusion of the sermon. So Jesus concludes the sermon. In verse 27, Jesus stops talking. The last thing he says is this pretty crazy illustration where, where for the last several chapters of our Bible and the last several, I don't know, hours that Jesus has been speaking from Matthew 5 through 7, they've heard things like, do not, uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He calls them out on their anger, on their lust, on their divorce, on their oaths, on their desire for retaliation. Jesus calls them out on a lot. And then he ends with this illustration, do what I say, otherwise you're walking towards destruction. So what happens? What happens at the end of his sermon? Well, Matthew records it for us. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, Jesus finishes his illustration, right? Um, and I think it's interesting that Matthew doesn't record any conversions. He doesn't record how many people followed Jesus. And we can presume that people did follow Jesus after these sermons. And especially since Matthew was a tax collector, you'd think numbers are important to him. I mean, unjust weights. I mean, the tax collectors kind of cheated a lot of people out of money. But you'd think that numbers would matter to this guy. But instead... He doesn't care about that. He says that the crowds were astonished, amazed. They were in wonder. At what? At Jesus's authoritative teaching. Now, when, when we say that Jesus spoke as one who had authority, what, what's meant in the text is that he's actually appealing to the Old Testament. That's what he really means. Uh, Matthew is meaning that Jesus spoke directly out of, out of things that these people knew and had heard, but, but weren't being taught. They weren't being taught how to apply God's word. And there's two pieces of irony that stick out to me in, in Matthew's recording of this. One, Jesus is authoritative. He's God. <laughs> if there's any person in the world that can tell you what to do, it's God. 
He's the only one who truly can teach with authority. So there's one piece of irony. These crowds, they don't know he's God, and yet they are amazed at what happens. They're amazed at his authority, amazed at how he's exegeting the scripture, how he's exposing the truth of things that they know, but exposing it in a way that causes them to repent. So first piece of irony, Jesus is God and he is authority. Second piece of irony, the scribes were the people in the culture who were supposed to have authority over God's word. And yet Jesus is compared in verse 29. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So let's deal with that second piece of irony first, because it takes a little unpacking to really understand. Scri uh, one thing that was consistent with both the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the people who supposedly had the authority to teach the scriptures, was that they, they actually tended to rely on pedigree instead of competency. So the scribes especially would often, uh, would often quote others in order to appeal to their authority, right? So the, the, the more intelligent person you knew, uh, the, the person who had the most initials after their name that you could quote or maybe you studied under, that's how intelligent you were. But, they, but, but the lectures would often go like this from a scribe. And it was a lecture from a scribe. It was, should have been a sermon from a Pharisee, lecture from a scribe. Lectures would go like this. So-and-so says this about this text. Meanwhile, this other rabbi so-and-so says this. The meaning must be somewhere in between. Otherwise, people wouldn't be arguing. Or it would go, we have to agree with the first or second so-and-so because of these reasons and point it out. So they wouldn't ever have any authority. They wouldn't ever teach from any, any, any text, really. They would just kind of bounce around and quote, the, quote a more intelligent person. Uh, they wouldn't try to expose any truth of the text, really. But, uh, or scribes, and, and scribes would also, also shift authorities based on whoever was popular. So whoever was the most often quoted individual, that would become their new go-to quoter, their new go-to studier. The scribes also would argue, they would debate, uh, and the debates would, would, would basically go, the, their appeal to authority was never God's word, it was always somebody else. So, you know, oh, well, I was taught this, and the guy that taught me this was way smarter than the guy that taught you, so we should trust the guy that taught me. Not trust my words. And that's, that's, that's what's different. Jesus is saying, hear what I'm saying, do what I say. The scribe would say, uh, hear what I'm saying because somebody else has said it. They never had words of their own, and they never had any authority of their own. The scribe's job was actually to know the scriptures. They were supposed to be able to memorize the scripture and write it down and copy it and, and replicate it. That was their job, man. They were supposed to know God's word. But they didn't really. They, they knew what everybody said about God's word. They never looked into God's word. They just knew about it. That would be a better way of saying it. Scribes also would appeal to their own education to show authority. 
They were all about the number of people they'd studied under, the number of recognizable uh, rabbis that they'd been with. They, they, they were all about people recognizing their authority, but again, through the means of something else. So when Jesus' listeners, when the crowds hear the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, they sit there amazed because Jesus isn't appealing to anything except the Bible. He's not quoting the latest faddish preacher. He's not quoting the, 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 the other rabbis and, and dismantling their arguments. He's just saying what God intends and what God wants people to hear. And what do people do? They're amazed. They're amazed at how simple and clear and obvious God's word is. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is really providing nothing new. He's not providing new research. He's not providing new information. He's providing old information. He's packaging old information, putting in front of the crowds and saying, hey, you know this, so listen to what I'm saying. Be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock, not the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, namely some dude's reputation that's here today, gone tomorrow, that's faddish today, but tomorrow they're going to be forgotten. So Jesus is not appealing to some secondary authorities, appealing to the Bible, to the Old Testament, and applying it with, with not New Testament principles, not even new principles, old principles, the purpose, the point. So that's the second irony. Again, the second irony was that, uh, was that the scribes were supposed to have authority. They were supposed to be learned, they were supposed to be capable, and they weren't. The first irony, again, that Jesus is God and has that authority already, like it's, they don't, these people are recognizing what Jesus already had. The second irony is, is, is that they were amazed at him. Are you amazed at God? Are you amazed? Are you astonished at him? That's what the emergent church tried to do. It tried to create a God that was amazing without recognizing that God is already amazing. Um, the, the emergent church tried to promote a wonder about God, and honestly, like, we, we are supposed to be in constant amazement and constant awe of who God is. Constant, all the time. But we're not. There are certain people throughout history who've done it better than the emergent church, so don't pick up any emergent church authors. Uh, I think men like John Piper in our day, or John Bunyan and the other Puritans, Martin Luther of the Reformation, Augustine of the, of the first couple centuries of the church, I think they promoted a wonder of God orthodox, a, a biblical right understanding of, of, of awe at God. Um, and I think, I think appealing to older sources would have been better, but only because they let you see God's word as it is. A guy like Martin Luther is nothing but a window into scripture itself. And in our text, we have people who are astonished at Jesus himself, the living word of God. 
So the reason I'm, I was excited to bring these two verses up is because I want to ask the question, when you approach God's word, when you read the Bible, when you read and encounter God's own voice recorded in text, are you amazed? Are you astonished? We might know we should. We, we might even pay lip service to this fact. We might affirm it. But are we really amazed? Are we really amazed that contained within, my Bible is what, like 1,400 pages, 13, 1,300 pages? Am I, am I astonished that I have what God has said and what God means by what he says contained in this book? Am I amazed at it? Are you amazed at it? Do you, when you read it, pick it up and drink of its words in astonishment, like these people who listen to Jesus? Do you listen to an audio Bible, read it with coffee in hand, uh, or use your last ounce of energy at the end of the day to read even a single verse and sit at it in wonder of God? I want to acknowledge that honestly, I don't think you do, and I don't think I do. I know I don't do, do it that way. If you're like me, you probably read God's word more with frustration of everything happening around you than with amazement. Our frame, our thinking, our hearts are damaged by a similar malady, you and I. It's our fallen nature. We struggle to be amazed at God's word. We struggle to be astonished like this crowd was when we read what God has said. So what should you do if you're like me? Which I hope I'm not the only one in the room that struggles with that. Pray. Pray that God creates amazement as you read his word. Plead for his help with your Bible reading. Plead, often, uh, probably some of you plead that you even get to read the Bible. Plead even more that your, your Bible reading will not be afflicted by, by, by cares of this world, by struggles about illness or finances. Plead that you can read God's word as God speaking. John MacArthur got, got I mean, he's famous for one-liners, but he made a statement, you ever want to hear God's voice? Read the Bible aloud. <laughs> Do that. Read God's word and plead with God that he creates amazement in you. We should be amazed at this. We should be amazed and astonished like this crowd when they hear Jesus speak. Why? Because even though he was the incarnate word of God, we have the inscripturated word of God right here. All of it. All of it, constantly. Which is where I derive the sermon title, which you may have been asking, why the heck is this title, How to Read the Bible? Let me tell you, you let, let me tell you exactly why it's titled that. When you read the Bible, you should do what Jesus says in verses 24 to 27. You should do what he says, but you should also read it with amazement. How do you read the Bible? Astonished that you are hearing God's voice, and willing to do what he says, whatever the cost. So here's your one application. There were two sermon points. The second sermon point, I forgot to read, I'm sorry. But God's words create, ooh, 
typo. God's words creates amazement at God, is what it says, but it should say create. God's words create amazement at God. So one thing that you need to walk away from these sections of verses, here's what you should do. You should do what Jesus says to do and be amazed that he even told you what to do. What a foundational thing. God is a speaking God, and we kind of take that for granted. God spoke the world into existence. It doesn't take long when you read the first page of the Bible to realize that God, God acts by speaking. So are you ever astonished that he even does that? If not, if you're like me, and you need to be reminded of that, Plead with God that you be amazed at that fact. Plead and pray that you might have your heart enlivened and your mind enlightened so that you can be amazed at him alone. Be amazed that God has preserved the Bible through centuries for his glory and your good. Beg God that you might be astonished like this crowd at the words on the page. That's what we all need, friends, in this world. We need amazement. We need wonder. We need a wonder at God, prepping us for an eternal sight of his glory and his beauty. We need to be amazed here and now by God and his word. Let's pray. God, we have hearts that are prone to wander. We have minds that are prone to wander. We struggle, as you so well know. You walked in this world, Lord, and you, you, you saw the temptations, the same temptations we, we see and feel. But even now, Jesus, you're not a was, you are an is. You're still alive, and you see everything that happens and every temptation we have, and yet you provide us ways of escape. So I pray that you would help us to fight the temptation to be bored, to fight the temptation to be, to be uh, catatonic in our Bible reading, but instead to be amazed at you, the speaking God, who has preserved his words for us. And then let us take that amazement and turn it into action, turn it into doing so that we can build our house on you as our foundation. O Lord, our Savior and Redeemer, it's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, friends, are you amazed at the Lord? Are you amazed when you open his word? Are you amazed that when you pray, he hears you? That's astonishing to me. And are you doing what he says? Think about that this week. Go in peace.